everybody and welcome to uh, What Would the Smart Party Do? I'm Baz King. And I'm Evil Gaz. He's not really evil. And he's not really a king. Ah, except today I am, because today is time to talk about mechanics. Um, God, I love mechanics, I really do. And, and I'm not sure that everybody does. Some people don't think they're important, which is, which is cool, but um, I think they add everything to the game they're more than just the salt and pepper i think if you haven't got those you're just you're just telling tales around a campfire um, for me you know need a bit more of your role playing game so um i've got a list of stuff that i like mechanically um and some examples for some games i've got some stuff that i dislike too what have you got guys um yeah i've picked out bits and pieces of various mechanics good bad and ugly um i don't think any one system is perfect i'll throw that out first of all even my favorite systems I could pick flaws out, of, um, and I've, I imagine as well, even games I don't particularly like, there's bits and pieces of them that I can still pick out and say, well, that bit's good. Even something as simple as, for example, in Nominate, which is Angels versus Demons and that kind of thing. And it's a, a game I've tried to play, but, I, you know, you read the campaigns and adventures and think, what on earth do I do with this? I'm sure some people have great campaigns, but I can't see it, and there's not a lot of mechanical support there that really works all the choirs and all the rest of it, all these different powers, all really complicated. But a bit I really like is that you roll 3d6, and if you get three ones, that's the Holy Trinity, so that's good. And if you get three sixes, that's the number of the beast, and that's bad for the players because it's what the devil likes. And just that little bit of flavour or something, I really like in a game, even if the rest of it I'm not really happy about, if you know what I mean. So I think even your worst game, everyone should be able to pick bits out that they quite like. And, and, and you know what, that is, it's on my list. I had in nominee on there as well, and I knew you would do too because I think that's absolutely right. Because I don't think I've have I played in nominee. I don't think I have, but I remember that triple dice roll, and I remember it being there. Now, am I right in thinking like you have two dice, one color, and the third one's a separate one as well? So like the third dice is like an effect dice, or am I mixing up me the mechanics here? Yeah, that sounds familiar. I'm not sure if that applies to yeah. other GURPS games as well, but def yeah, I, re I remember it. Yeah, and, and that's the point, isn't it? I remember that in Nominee is a game, and I remember it came in two different covers, and you could have like the baddies and the goodies, which is not a mechanic, but equally a really nice little trick. But I remember that particular dice mechanic thinking, that's cool. It's enough to make me want to play the game, to roll that occasionally and see how often it comes up. And... And also, I think it kind of like feeds back into like your memory, probably of your first ever role-playing games, because kind of everyone knows what a 3D6 roll looks like, and you kind of know how often triple sixes and triple ones come up, and there's just a natural feeling of good and bad in them. Although, what's good about Innominate is that triple six is bad, and you know normally the higher you roll, the better. Triple six in D&D &D is strength 18, and then you can lie about the percentage bit that you stick next to. But triple six in Innominate is like so bad it's going to be good because the game has to do something amazing immediately afterwards. I think it's a great mechanic. I can't remember anything else about the game at all mechanically, but yeah. I can remember that. I think that's cool. Um, that that's not your favourite though. That's just a that's just something that supports uh, in a limited way the game of Innominate, I guess. Um, what else you got? Anything good? Um, yeah, yeah, tons actually. Um, one of the things I think doesn't work particularly well in a lot of games are, well, grappling and things like that. That's that's always like a full page of A4, and by the end of it, you're not sure what happens. 
anything else you want to do in a game, stab someone in the face, drive a car, seduce someone, can very often come down to one roll or a short series of rolls. Trying to grapple someone or put their arm behind the back seems to take forever, apparently. Mm. Um, and I think vehicle rules come under that as, as well, quite similarly. A lot of stuff you try and do with car chases or uh, battles in cars or ships or whatever, struggles. Um, so I'll mention the dead game from last time, Beta Causes which is Neil Gow's uh, Napoleonic Affair. And that works really well with the ship-to-ship combat, which I think he tried uh, an effect of as well as spaceship battles. So you've got uh, a card flop rather than dice, and the four different suits apply to different parts of your ship. So it might be the hull or the crew or the cannons or the rigging or whatever else. Uh, And as one of them dies or gets kind of shot through, then you get penalties to add your maneuverability or your firepower. And it's a really good interactive one. Uh, and also good from the point of view that um, you can have all the other players involved in something. Quite often in car chases or battles, there'll be somebody making drive rolls and everybody else not doing very much. At least when you've got a big ship, there can be somebody in charge of the guns, somebody's uh, directing the ship itself, someone's trying to command the crew, uh, and everyone gets a little bit of a chance to get involved. The weather's included. There's, you know, there's all kinds of bits and pieces to it that make it a really interesting game and how far you are away from the other ship. And it's one of the few examples I've seen of something like vehicle rules that actually work well and get other players involved rather than the pilot or whoever the captain is. Yeah, I mean, vehicle rules are peculiar, aren't they? I mean, this, this hobby's been going a long time and it's had technology within its games ever since it began. And it's like vehicle rules are one of those things where um, I just don't think it's solved. It's not a solved to you yet. And it probably, I would imagine, in the very first or second session of any role-playing game ever run in the 70s, people tried to do some kind of a chase because it's such a staple of films and comics and books and and all the other stuff that feeds into the stories we like to tell. But I know of a game that really, really gets it right with chases. People talk about the old James Bond game. not that close to it. I agree with you that I think Beta Quarters does a great job of it. Um, And interestingly, in using cards... Reminds me of the card game that, that I quite like, which is Castle Falkenstein. Now, it's not a game that has no issues, um, but it one of the things it does very well is, is utilise what cards do that dice can't. And it's not the only game that does that. I, I suspect either you or I will mention something to do with cards later. But, but for now, with Castle Falkenstein, for those who don't know it, it's kind of a steampunk Victoriana game. Um, it's set in a world where all of the literary characters from Jules Verne and H.G. Wells are real and walking around and you can uh, fly on dragon backs to do battles with zeppelins in the sky and it's evil Prussians and it's all very Prisoner of Zender. It's a cool enough setting already, but one of the things that it does with the cards as its resolution mechanic is it immediately makes you feel more Victoriana when you're doing it because dice are for cads and cards are for gentlemen. And... The other thing it does is in your hand of cards, you as a player will know everything that you've got in front of you. You'll have some rubbish cards, you'll have some great cards, and you know that. So it's not particularly random. You're not rolling a dice to see whether you succeed or not, but you might be chucking in your terrible cards to get a redraw. So you know you're going to take a failure now to get a potential success later, which sounds like something fate does years later. Or you might be dropping in your big cards right now, but leaving yourself with some hell to come slightly down the road and the suits of the cards make all the difference to what you're trying to attempt and that's where it has that six so it backs up the setting quite nicely just by that whole tactile element of playing cards 
and it produces a little bit of story out of the way that you play and gives over a bit of narrative control without being too heavy-handed about it. And it ain't perfect, um, and you know, there's loads of things you can do with those cards that, that make the game, I don't, know, don't want to use the word broken, but it does definitely put a stop in what you're trying to achieve. But for its time, and I think this would have been early, mid-90s, I think it was one of the first games to really utilise that card deck. I think it's a great game for it. Yeah, I think um, there was a problem with it that could now be fixed, arguably, but if I recall correctly, it's more a task-based game than, say, conflict resolution. Yes, definitely. And the problem was, you get in a fight, and that might require spades, for example, I think it was, or maybe horses' defence, I can't remember. But you might start the battle, and you've got your four or five card hand, and you've got a couple of good cards for using that. But after a couple of rounds, you've spent them, and then all of a sudden, you've got nothing to use in, a, in the battle anymore, and just throwing rubbish away. And yeah. that seems like, you, you know, you re even though you set yourself up for a fight because you, you kept hold of the fight cards and threw away the, the talky ones, very quickly you run out of them. But in today's market, where we have conflict resolution, I think if you move to that model, where you only had to make one or two plays to see how you did in a fight rather than the, the backwards and forwards, I think that would solve a lot of what I found to be a problem at the time, that you didn't have the consistency of being able to be good at something because of the random nature of cards and the suit you want for a particular thing, you've only got one in four cards that are that suit. So once you've spent a couple, the chances of getting another are quite low. Make it conflict resolution, and all of a sudden that system works a lot better. Yeah, I, that's, that, I think that's right. And I think that was when I was playing it, that was before I probably knew what conflict resolution was. Um, and, you know, you, you bring your old habits with you. I do recall it had a dueling system. So there was a way of using those cards to do real by, by every cut and every thrust and every parry. So I wonder if there's like a bit of an implication, it'd be interesting to go back and look at the book again, that maybe maybe it was expected that you would only do a single hand of cards for a punch-up or one of those silly little fights that doesn't take much, and you would use the dueling system for more. I don't know, it didn't explain itself brilliantly, which I think was maybe half the reason it, it didn't really take off as well as it could. But I do remember it being quite innovative, and and there is a certain thrill in buying a special deck of cards for your game. You know, everyone wants to get their own dice for a game. Again, a card deck is uh, is arguably even more fun because you've got that whole kind of visual element that you, you're just not going to get off a bunch of D10s. So that was one of my favourites anyway. Um, what else you got, mate? Well, we've mentioned before that uh, system can inform the game or support it. And one thing you often see around the gaming table is uh, certainly players are perhaps less confident or unsure of the world or how they're supposed to act is that you throw something at them and the first thing to do is look down the character sheet for something to do. And quite yeah. often, you know, th there might be nothing there. There's, there's some skills which don't seem applicable or they're not sure what to use. So if we go back to the original indie game of Pendragon, which is laser-focused and it's intent, that's got a, a bunch of traits in there which are binary. So you might be... Um, suspicious or trusting, for example, or valorous or cowardly. And there's a whole bunch of those. And straight away, when you look down at your sheet, you can tell what sort of knight you've got. If you've got suspicious 17, you're not going to believe a word that the the, knight, the lord of the castle says, for example. Whereas if you've got trusting 17, all the, as a player, you might know he's lying through his teeth, but your knight will be absolutely trusted. And that's a good knightly virtue to have as well. And I think certainly for new players or people unsure of themselves in games, that trait mechanic's really good. It gives you straight away a map of how your knight acts 
And if you're unsure what to do, you can either roll against it or pick your highest number on whichever side it is and use that. And then the really good bit about it is that if you act in a particular way, the chances are through the advancement system that that particular trait will go up. So if you're constantly suspicious and asking questions of people and not believing them, your suspicious will go up and your trusting will go down. If you constantly run away from fights, your cowardly will go up. So very soon, even if you started out one way, the way you act as a player in the game then informs how your character looks. And once a trait hits 16, your knight's famous for that. So if you're particularly suspicious all the time, eventually everyone in court is going to know that you're a suspicious knight, you don't believe a word anyone says, and view you poorly for that. Or, for example, that you're a brave knight because you're valorous and always running into fights that you can't handle or whatever else it might be. And I think that's a really good way of uh, explaining a system-informing play or... Uh, and, and the opposite, what, what I really like about it is that if you choose to play differently, then the game system changes or the, the your stats change to reflect how your play style. And it becomes really obvious to everybody on the sheet how you act. Which is about a million times more sophisticated than alignment. Yes. Which, which even from the very first days of the original Dungeon Master's Guide, had loads of stuff in there about how you should change people's alignments depending on what they did. But I don't think I ever saw it happen, and I don't know if that was because either I or my DMs were a bit nervous about playing with other people's character sheets. But I, I, but I remember in Pendragon, this is not actually a rare event either, is it, for, for one of those paired traits to move about like a little sliding scale. And it's kind of like a, a character sheet graphic equaliser, isn't it? Because yeah. everything kind of moves around on it, and, um, and it happens regularly. Um, I, what I remember of it is that it's a... It's also an absolute essential in that game because if you don't have that, there's got to be every chance that you're just a bunch of blokes in plate mail armor on horseback and you couldn't tell the difference between them apart from the things they said and maybe their style of conversation. But there's not a much mechanical differentiation apart from that and it puts that into a setting where everybody's kind of a paladin, to use a D&D term, and a party of paladins could be the worst game ever or the best game ever, I'm not sure, but... Those those mechanical those mechanical personality um, devices are often misused, but I think you're right. I think Pendragon got it right really early, and that game has been around a long time. I'm surprised it's not used more often. Do you, I mean, do you think that the that modern games um, owe any debt to that kind of personality pairing? Have you seen like it's it's children in more modern games? I've not seen it work in the same way. I think it's something that you could port uh, if you wanted to run another game. Um, for example, I, I, I quite often do um, like backgrounds for a character's a, a convention game or something like that, try and seed that with some information to try and make or guide people to play a certain way. Uh, nine times out of ten, people don't even read it or just act how they would do anyway and all the rest of it and forget it. But I think if you had a pair of sliders and uh, if it was something like Aliens, for example... You could have trust the company or distrust it. You could have, uh, you know, believe in extraterrestrials or don't. You could, whichever way you want to do it, you know, reach for violence, look for compromise. You could set up a pair of sliders and stick some numbers one way or the other. And straight away, without having to read reams of background or interpret what I've written, someone could look at the numbers and go like, okay, well, I really love Whaling Corporation because they give me everything. Uh, and this extraterrestrial stuff's nonsense. You know, these don't really exist. Or, or whatever it might be. So I think that's easy to set up. I don't think I can't think of any off the top of my head of 
games where you, you have those sort of binary pairs and they move up and down as well. Mm-hmm. But, There's games with meters, aren't there? I think Unknown yes. Armies has madness meters, but they're not linked to each other. One doesn't go down when the other one goes up, I don't think. No, that's right. There's there's quite a few games that have things like um oh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but uh let's say Dead of Night, for example, which is uh, about horror movies or or those style of games. You tend to have or you do have uh, four sets of stats and you've got to make them add up to ten, I think it is off the top of my head. So mm. you'll have a, an attack and defend basically and and that sort of thing, or a persuade and dissuade. So if you want to be really good at persuading people or locks to open or that kind of thing, it means you're bad at dissuading them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a mechanic in there where you spend your survival point to kind of flip it around for a scene to do something differently. But I think there's there's a few games like that. There's um, Was it 316? You only really have two stats. There's like your fighty one and everything else. Those are your only two skills or abilities you have. But again, they, right. they just add up yeah. to one number. So you're good at one thing and not as good as the other, or you're, you're mediocre at both. Yeah, and, and it's, it's just it's just dead simple, isn't it? Because, you know, when you're generating characters like that, you're going to get something that's a bit more, it's just a bit easier to go with. And the thing about the Pendragon bit that I think gets missed, and you've said it, is that over time it changes. If you just have that kind of paired stat thing, that's okay. That will give you a fairly strong character, and it might be quite stereotypical, I suppose, you know, because you'll be no one's going to pick anything in the middle, are they? You're going to want to be strong, or you're going to want to be lusty. You're not going to want to pick fives and sixes if the scale goes from one to ten. But with Pendragon, it changes, and I like that because I think that you do change the way that you play a character because you have to react to the world that you're in, you react to the story, you react to the setting, you react to everybody else. And that initial idea that you rocked up with, if it's static on the page, after half a dozen sessions, you might be feeling a bit uncomfortable in that character's skin. Um, And rather than going to your GM and tearing it up and saying, "Can can we start again? You know, what if your character can shift about mechanically, not just in the way that you play it? And, and that's one of the good things about Pendragon. Yeah, love it. I think uh, another bit about Pendragon, just to chuck in there as well, is you're very right, the differentiators, the traits, and I think that's something that people miss because uh, I've had a, quite a few people don't want to play it because they just think it's about knights, saving princesses and fighting dragons. And it's that personality bit that changes it. But mm-hmm. considering uh, the time, and so there's only really D&D and RuneQuest and a few other games like that about, um, another good mechanic is um, the squire role. So instead of being, because D&D was very much make sure you've got your 10-foot pole and your holy symbol and players really trying to make sure they've got every angle covered so the GM couldn't screw over and that sort of thing. And Pendragon was a paradigm shift in that you have a squire, so if you need some rope to climb up a mount, uh, a castle wall or something like that, then you roll against your squire's urge to see if he brought it. You're a knight, you don't pack that stuff, you don't count your money. So there's loads of bits and pieces that people at the time traditionally wanted to make sure they've got their ass covered in, in every way they could. That now you just say, well, no, it just depends whether Herbert's brought it with him or not. Whether he remembered to pack it. Can he get to you in time to hand you your spare sword? Yeah, and, and I know you've said to me before as well that those squires, they're not just the role. That squire gets a personality quite quickly after a couple of right rolls of the dice. <laughs> they become, I always imagine it like Roy Kinnear in the Three Musketeers films. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they, they, those little lads are going to turn out to be characters of the future aren't they and possibly the best thing about that session was what the squire did or didn't do absolutely yeah, yeah they should call it the Baldrick role <laughs> <'Cause>, um, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I've seen that, and, and I actually had something similar to that on my list of you know mechanics I like. Um, in in a lot of games now, you will see less, I think, of the tendency to have really long equipment lists and a big shopping scene when you're generating your character. And you might still have money or currency, that kind of thing. That seems to still stick around in a lot of the trad games that I see. But what is nice to see is something um, that I think Gumshoe calls preparedness, which doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, but it is that, that squire role where you might have a little resource or a role where you didn't have to like, look through your sheet to see if you brought the grappling hook, but your character was probably prepared enough to have put one there before, or maybe he's got a mini one, or has just stumbled across one on a goon that he, that he offed five minutes ago. And it does make it a little bit more like that because, you know, James Bond doesn't have huge amounts of Swiss army knives. He has just the right gadget at just the right time. And something like preparedness is a really neat little mechanic. And, and lots of games use something like it and they all call it something different, but it's a great piece of shorthand and takes the equipment chapter out of the game, which I'm always happy to see because nobody enjoys reading those anymore. No, and you know, who wants an adventure where you, you've got your 50 foot around from the gems like, oh, no, sorry, it's a 70 foot high wall, so that's not going to cut it. It's like, well, really? Is that is that the focus of our game? Is that what we're interested in? That? I know Torchbearer has come out and that sort of like really celebrated it and gone down to the, you have to have everything to the nth degree and work out how to win at that game. So if you want to go that route, there is something there for you, such as the breadth of our hobby at the minute, but I don't think it's something that most of us want to do necessarily. No. No, no, I don't think so. You know, there's there's, there's now a whole bunch of, of modern games design which is designed to get people past those game stoppers of yore, which I guess must have been fun, otherwise I wouldn't have played them. But they're those bits where in the Cthulhu game, you didn't make your spot clue, or in your D&D game, you brought a nine-foot pole and you needed an 11-foot pole, or the ropes, like you say. And that used to happen a lot, and very much so when it was in modern games as well anything to do with cyberpunk or anything like that because there was so much kit available you just find some of the adventures and scenarios were presented that you needed that magic piece of MacGuffin or it didn't go anywhere yeah and who wants that you know shopping can be fun shopping for superpowers by mail order is what some people call role playing uh, that's kind of cool but not actually going through the Argos catalog looking for devices Although I remember you once telling me about an Argos catalogue used as an equipment chapter. Yeah, absolutely. A game called Blood, which was a bit silly, but uh, quite a brutal horror game. Uh, and it was quite amusing that you had critical tables for everything from power sanders to uh, pointy pencils or something, I think. But yeah, the advice given in there for, for a modern game was just hand out the Argos catalogue. And the, the, the good bit then was even though there was no mechanical benefit from getting an SLR camera or just a standard one, players would go out of their way to spend more money because they wanted a good one. And I really like that touch that people are willing to spend more in-game resource so that in their head it feels like they've got a better camera than... Even though it makes no difference. But, you know, as self-respecting adventurers, we have to have the best kit. I did like that. Yeah, uh, quite right, quite right. So um, one of the things you dropped into the conversation a few minutes ago, and I made a note of it because I wanted to come back to it, is you dropped in Wayland Corporation, which, for those who don't know, is a corporation in the Netrunner game, in the Android universe. Um, I don't think it was around when Cyberpunk was doing its thing. It's the robot game. It's a different thing, isn't it? But it's, it's essentially it's a, it's a corporation in, in that futuristic world. And what it reminded me of is a thing that I like to see in game mechanics generally, 
and Netrunner does it superbly well, even though it's a card game, and that's asymmetrical design. And where I like my asymmetry is in the dividing line, if you can call it that, between the GM and the players. Because I like players to be playing their game and the GM to not have to use all of the playing rules for their bad guys uh, or for their plot points or whatever it is. So I'll give you an example of something that drive me batty, excuse the pun, would be the old World of Darkness stuff. So you'd have your four or five players and they'd be doing their thing. And as the GM, you'd want to have a whole bunch of NPCs because it's that kind of game and, and why wouldn't you? But the NPCs, were they were pretty much statted up as, as in as complex a fashion as every single PC. So you might have six sheets of A4 to represent some people who might not be in scenes for very much. And, and if it's all exactly the same weighting on both sides of the screen, and that made it pretty tough to run. Um, and there's plenty of games that do that. And I, I kind of shy away from them because what I like are the games with a bit of asymmetry. And sometimes it can be very simple, like Savage Worlds, which has a wild dice, which is like an extra bonus dice for the players. The GM usually doesn't get that so that they can run 20, 30 guys with as much uh, effort as the player with a nice complex set of options in front of them without slowing down the game. Or it could be something like, you know, and in fairness, I think D&D got this right a very long time ago, when its monster stats were not the same as the PC stats. Third edition tried to make everything the same, but prior to that, one of the things that I liked was that you could stat out an orc with its attack, its damage, maybe its morale, and it could fit on one line. And you need that when, you, when you're presenting 30 or 40 encounters in an adventure, and you're going to have to line these guys up in front of players who will chop them in half in 10 minutes. So I like that asymmetry, which Wayland the Corporation reminded me of, because Netrunner does it so well. It, it has two completely separate games going on at the same time, and that interface is really nice. Yeah, I, I like stuff that's taken some of the heavy lifting away from the GM, because he's outnumbered a lot of the time, like by four to six to one often. Um, mm. So another one would be something like in the one ring which has got some very good bits to it probably need to mention that um they've got uh an eye of sauron and a gandalf room which one a d12 so you've got one to ten and then these two rooms uh, one's good for the players one's bad for them so if you're in a fight for example and a player rolls a sauron rune, rune even that means the gm gets a cold shot with one of his creatures next turn so whereas players have to specifically call a shot and make a better roll than normal, all that kind of thing, the GM doesn't have to worry about it. He just sees the Eye of Sauron turn up and goes, right, that's a poison arrow coming your way next turn. And, and that sort of um, gives you the same frequency of some cool things happening, but not having to track it on the GM point of view or worry about numbers or, or tick, you know, being counted or ticking things off. It's just something that comes up through what the players are doing. And you go, thanks very much. And then, you know, after a while, the players start to recognise it as well. So someone rolls that Baz rune, and all of a sudden everyone else is throwing dice at him and shouting at him because he's messed things up or whatever. It gets that bit of dynamic going on their side as well. And, mm. and, and that's all that in the open as well. Then as well, it's not some guy like the old days we had a GM screen and he used to roll dice and then make stuff up. It's, you can see it out in front of you as well, which I quite like. And I think that's something that's happening more in, in the modern play styles, if you know what I mean, that gems seem to be getting more comfortable with just rolling dice and seeing what happens rather than worrying about hiding them and then making things up themselves. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't used a GM screen in anger in, in a very long time, and I, I still use games that would imply that you 
need to use one, but really it's to stop my dice flying off the other end of the table. It's, it's not to, to hide anything. And, and you're right, I think all of the, the new Star Wars games and um, the Warhammer game from Fantasy Flight before that, any of those, those games that have got weird dice with new icons on, they love showing them off. And there's very, very rarely will you ever want to keep those dice rolls away because you don't know what's happened. And, and, and they don't give out binary results anymore either. That's half of the fun, isn't it? It's not pass or fail with these dice rolls. It's uh, pass and fail and maybe something else. And it's introduced the twist and maybe it's brought in some backshadowing. And everybody wants to see what happens with that. And I like those things. There's an element of novelty to it. Um, and, and that might not always last forever. But, I mean, I think you've been playing One Ring for a while now. The gloss hasn't worn off it, has it? So it's obviously got legs in, in other departments too. It's not a game I know, actually. So, so is there other cool stuff in the One Ring, or is it a one-trick pony with those dice? Yeah, there's, there's definitely cool stuff there. Uh, the bit that doesn't work quite as well for me is the uh, encounters, I think it calls them, the interactions. That's basically just a skill challenge of trying to knock up a certain number of uh, successes when you're convincing someone to let you go on the mission or whatever it might be, um, compared to their tolerance and how many times you can mess rolls up. So there's not a lot that goes on there. But uh, it's got things like the the combat's uh, representative, so you pick a stance. If you want to get right in the thick of all the orcs, then you put yourself in a forward stance, and that makes it easier for you to hit people, but also easier for you to get hit. And conversely, if you go to defensive stance, it means you're harder to hit, but it's less likely you're going to hit any of the orcs or whatever they are as well. There's a rearward stance as well. The Hobbit can sit back and shoot with his arrows, but you've got to have at least a couple of people in forward stances to kind of protect him so that nobody can run on the back and that sort of thing. And So it's not positional in terms of how many feet you are. It's just how involved in the fighting or how reckless you want to be. And also each stance has a particular special ability that you could use if you're there as well. So, for example, if you're in the forward stance, you can use the... Uh, or your or ability and just try and shout orcs away basically if they're craven for some of the Mordor orcs you can reduce their hate scores if you shout loud enough and they'll just run off you go I'm Boromir who are you idiots get away now before I slay you all and two or three might leg it just from you showing off standing at the front so that's all cool as well loads of little bits in there, there. and uh, the journeys works well as well that's that's something that's I think it's particularly good because it's trying to emulate the style of the source material be it the books or the movies, in terms of if you walk through Mirkwood, there's quite a lot of dice rolls that go with that, but it's actually really arduous as well. The first time some of my players went through Mirkwood, they all just looked at each other like, well, we're not doing that again. We're walking around. Whereas normally any other game, D&D or whatever, you quite happily walk into the heart of darkness and come back with bags of loot. But this really emulates the sort of Tolkien aspect of the, the really bad bits of Mirkwood. You don't want to go there. Things happen. And again, it comes down to that the scout or the huntsman, and there's, there's this little representative chart of who's got what role, who's the lookout, who's whatever. And there's a whole bunch of hazards that have been coming out. And if you roll the Eye of Sauron when you're doing something, it means you've hit a, ha- a hazard. So it might be an encounter with a spider. It might be that uh, a river's got really swollen and you need to try and work a way across it. And all these things can wear the players down or the player characters down. And it all depends on, again, the, the roles of the players. And if those Saurons come up and they all start getting really sort of like petty and bitchy with each other if someone keeps failing the role and keeps causing these hazards to happen and it sort of emulates that if you were on a long arduous journey and you start to get on each other's nerves and there's some guy who keeps picking bad campsites and things keep happening because of them all the rest of the guys are going to turn on him and I think it really those sort of things really bring out the, the essence of the, the Tolkien stories 
And I suppose the other bit as well, which is uh, relatively small compared to those, but you get shadow points for doing bad things. So if you walk mm-hmm. up behind someone and stab in the back, you get loads of shadow points, and then you start going all uh, Bilbo and getting horrible shadows under your eyes and your whole personality starts to change. There's, there's certain times when the GM can take over your character because you have bouts of madness. So again, it mechanically reinforces you're a goodie. You know, you, you don't go picking pockets and slitting throats and all that kind of stuff. It's not D&D. This is a Tolkien game. So it's another great example of, of rules supporting the type of game they want to have. Yeah, and, and speaking of going all Bilbo, which, <laughs> which is an expression everybody understands, I like that too. And, you know, some of the mechanics I love are very much standalone and you could apply them to any game, like stuff like the Escalation Dice from 13th Age. Just pour that into anything. It doesn't make your game more 13th Agey. It just sits on its own. That's fine. But like you, I really like those things that support the tone of what's going to be happening around the table. And riffing off of the Harpling thing, Hobbiting, my next pick actually is from Dungeon Crawl Classics which is, it's not a retro clone, it's a, it's a reimagining of, of the, the world's oldest role-playing game, and it's done through the lens of all of that. It's 50s, 60s, and 70s pulp fiction, um, and it's really designed to put a bit of a modern gloss on a very old game, but just, you know, play a bit of a what-if. Um, and I love it for loads of different reasons, but mechanically, the thing it does to support that setting is, is something I didn't spot until I played the game. You can't tell from the text unless you're a sharper reader than I am, I guess. But the game's got a luck stat, which on its own is nothing particularly innovative. I mean, millions of games do that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's got luck. Great. And you spend your points from your luck stat and you use them to affect your role. So again, nothing particularly innovative. But as you read through the character classes and the rules and you see a few games unfold, you realise that the genius of the luck stat is that it's very, very difficult to get it back in fact, it's next to impossible. Getting points back in luck is like an adventure reward. So you might have 15 luck at the start of the adventure, but you might get a reward of one if you live. So they're hard to get unless you're a thief. So a thief regenerates luck. That's like its special ability. Which didn't seem like a big deal when I read The Thief in Isolation, but that's brilliant. And then the other brilliant thing about it is that the halfling, and this is a game where race and class are completely separated, the halfling can share its luck with other people. So what you've got is if you've got Bilbo, you've essentially got a lucky mascot for the party and everybody else does better because he's there, although he's not much good on his own. And that just really reinforces why thieves are always, in my opinion, the master class because they just end up ruling all eventually because they're sneaky enough to get away with everything. And that tiny little mechanical difference between them and warriors and clerics and wizards is enough to probably keep them alive, but very, very wounded. And halflings always walk out with a smile on their face because they're the lucky mascots. And uh, they use like, you know, luck batteries in parties, which is <laughs> it's just another way of looking at something that the one ring is also doing. You know, it's, it's combining that kind of adventuring party and having a burglar um, and I just love it. I just think that's a really clever thing to do without being so so crass almost as to say the classic party should always have a halfling in it because otherwise you're not playing Dungeon Crawl Classics. You know, you could say that. But that's not a mechanic. That's advice. So I love the way that it's happened on Cement, that story. I think that's clever. Yeah, that's pretty good. There's a, a fairly similar thing in um, 
in one ring where you've got halt points for the party and they, they don't come back as quickly as you think. As soon as you start playing, people spend lots of them to make sure they've hit rather than missed in every fight, and then they soon realise they're only getting one or two back and get very upset. But uh, you get a, a, a group pool to kind of a fellowship pool to use every time. And if you've got a half thing, you get an extra one. Or for every half thing you've got, you get an extra one. So it, it encourages having a hobbit in the party and that sort of thing as well, which is quite a nice touch. Now you that's, mentioned that's an important word, is it? When it's when it's encourage. I like yeah. games that encourage things. They don't, you know. It, there's plenty of games where, where, where things are black and white and this has to happen in certain circumstances. And, and the GM's advice chapter or rules chapter, if it's an Apocalypse World game, is it will say that you've got to do this because otherwise you're not playing the game as written. And I get that. But when you put those encouragements through the rules and you see it happen kind of organically and naturally through play, I think that's really satisfying. That means you might have to get it wrong once or twice before it really feels good. But, you know, that's an investment. I like that. Yeah, a lot of games, I mean, well, let's face it, as we discussed last time, a lot of people have come from the old trap background and are min-maxes, so if you just put something there that's clearly got an advantage to it, chances are someone's going to pick up on it and use it. You don't have to tell them to do it. Someone will look at it and say, I get more luck pointed on that character, I'm having him. I'm going to stay alive. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah. it's nice, like you say, to, to have it just as a thing there. And some people like unearthing those little gems as well. Some people like going through rule books or options and picking out which is the best one for them or what seems like a really good combination of things. So I like that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Now, I'll just pick up on luck, because you mentioned that, and we've mentioned Cthulhu as well. Now, the, the new edition, which is still struggling to come out, bless it, but it's definitely on its way. I've sent the PDF. It's got uh, optional rules, I think they are. Now, I did the play test, but I think that in the final product, it's optional, where you can actually spend your luck as you go through, which is quite nice. So the common cry playing those percentile systems was, oh, I missed by one, which was always answered yeah. by the GM of, well, you missed then. It doesn't matter whether you missed by one or 73, you've missed. You know, let's move on. Whereas now with our system, you can, I think, if it's made it to the final game, you can spend your luck stat to get that one or two on a one-for-one -one basis. So if you miss by 10, you might choose to spend 10 luck points. But again, that luck doesn't come back particularly quickly, necessarily. And also, as you're going through an adventure or a campaign, when it gets to the really important bits near the end, you want to have some luck left. You don't want to be the unluckiest player in a party when a shoggoth turns up. You don't want to be last. But um, another thing they've got which helps out with that kind of you failed your spot hidden or you failed this role or that role is the pushing roles. And I, I quite like that. So you might be trying to kick a back door in. You can hear there's a dog on the other side or something like that, maybe. Um, but you're trying to kick this back door in. You fail your strength roll or whatever it is. And... At that point, normally, that'd be, you know, oh, you can't try anymore. It's just too too heavily barred for you. But now the gem can offer you the, the option of pushing the roll. So you can say, okay, well, you can give it another go. You can make another roll. But if you mess it up, there's going to be severe consequences. So it's not this, oh, you can't, you couldn't get in, you walk the dog up. It's now going to be, you know, something more severe than that and gives the gem free rein. So at a game I played, that, that's the sort of scenario that happened. The guy decided to push failed, kicked the back door in and straight away there's a huge mastiff came out that took a, a big chunk out of his leg as this dog was all over him like a rash because he chose to push the roll. But that simple mechanic means that it's, it's all laid out for the players and it puts uh, a lot of focus on what the dice roll is going to be. As soon as someone says, yeah, go on, I'll push it, especially if they've got a mediocre or quite poor skill, skill everyone else is craning around the table leaning over to see what that dice roll is. And that's, that's really giving you some excitement about the roll and what's going to happen. 
and it's giving it up front. You know, the player knows what the, you know. There's going to be some dire consequences. It's not just a make me a roll and you roll something and then something bad happens. It's like you can push it, but the consequences are going to be a lot worse. A lot worse. What are you going to do? Uh, and mm. nine times out of ten, people push because it's more interesting. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Well, I, mean, I would, and you would. But <laughs> 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 well, uh, why wouldn't you? I, and that, that sounds pretty cool because I've, I've got to admit, if, if I had to pick a game where I didn't like much mechanically, it probably would be that old basic role-playing stuff. I, it falls a bit flat for me. I, I know that people out there who love it and have played it for 30 years now, and, and God bless them all. It, it doesn't work for me. Um, I don't like rolling percentage dice. And, and that's all there is to it. I just don't find it a satisfying tactile experience. I would rather roll a D10 and have my skills set between one and 10. And that, that is ridiculous, but that, that's how I feel about it. I don't think that, you know, that missing by one thing, once you've heard it once, you've heard that a million times, it's, you know, it's, I just find that that plucks me out of the game. And, and you don't want that happening in a Cthulhu session. Of course you don't, that, that bit of the game. But the idea of pushing it, that feeds into the setting as well a bit, I think, there. Because it, that, that kind of game of cosmic horror means you are going to find yourself in situations where you want to recoil and play it safe and maybe not investigate anymore. But you also might want to push. Because don't forget in Cthulhu, I'm guessing that you know trying to get through a locked door is not going to get you to a treasure vault with a dragon sitting on top of it. It's going to get you to unending horror and possibly the end of the world in no short order. So, you know, everything is big stakes. Um, so I quite like that you're invited to take on even more trouble in a game of Call of Cthulhu where you yeah. basically said, I'd like nothing but trouble because that's why I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think one of the, the strange things is when I play Cthulhu at uh, conventions and that sort of stuff, you quite often get players turtling up. So they've signed up for a game of cosmic horror and it's all they're all going to go mad or die at the end and seem to revel in it. But then spend three and a half hours in the game trying to be really safe and stay in the car and not going into the mansion and doing all kinds of things to avoid any kind of trouble when apparently the goal is to die at the end. Don't really understand yeah. it. So again, that's I think that's a rule which gives you some encouragement to try and get into trouble a bit more, which, which like you say, is sort of the, the aim of the game, surely. It is, and, and your character is confronted with the decision at that point the player is confronted with the decision push or not push but the character will be defined by what decision the player takes which for me is the essence of role playing you want everybody at the end of the session to remember that time when cynthia was pushed and she chose route a and if she'd chosen route b we would think about her differently i think that's great um i think it's Maybe, and this isn't the right term for it, but it might be a diluted version of stuff that the Apocalypse World and its family of world games tries to do by making everything a push roll. There, there isn't roles that, that aren't incredibly important and something fundamentally will be different afterwards, even if you whiff or miss it. You know, every role is a push. There's a consequence, whether it's pass, fail, or somewhere in the middle. And there's, I can't even tell whether passing those roles are a good idea in Apocalypse World or not. <laughs> <laughs> From a character safety point of view, is it possible to turtle and do that thing you were talking about with Cthulhu in Apocalypse World? I mean, if you join in, stuff happens to you. You can't avoid it, can you? Yeah, very much so. And that's, I think, something you've got to get your head around if you play that sort of game, is that there's, there's going to be trouble all the time. It's going to be constant triangles between you and two other people, and not two agree on the same side every time you have a conversation and that sort of thing. So you need to buy into that. I think that's why some of the, the Apocalypse World games I've played haven't gone so well, is you get people not turtling, but 
not having anything they want to do with their character. And at that point, if there's no conflict or interest or anything they care about, you've got nothing to make a story about. You know, if you, if you say someone's got a gun to your brother's head and you don't care, the game falls on its ass right at that moment there. Yeah. So yeah, it's, and that would be like rocking up to a D and D game and refusing to use D sixes. It's if you, that's that's a a strange way to want to play a game that advertises itself quite clearly as that's the kind of game we're going to be playing. Um, and, and normally I say play games in any way you want to, but given that there are at least a thousand games available, one for every style, millions for every style, I, I would find it a strange concept to rock up to play a game like that that you didn't really want to engage with. That's that's. That's strange in any game to not want to engage in it, but there are better ones where you'll be left alone. <laughs> you know, you can you can turtle up if you want to be a spectator and no one's going to mind, but that is not the game for it because that advice about pushing conflicts all the time is not advice. It's a mechanic. It doesn't have a lot of numbers or a mathematical formula, but it's a mechanic. Setting fronts, pushing hard, bar four for apocalyptica, all of that is, that's a rule. Um, and if you start taking those bits out of the game, you're watering it down. And, and why do that? Go and play something different, I think. Yeah. So, um, oh, I guess at this stage, then you know, let's let's think about like, some of those some of those mechanics because they're all they're all good. I, I'm trying to think of the game that would involve all of them. What kind of unholy mess that would be? Probably rifts or something. I don't know. Um, you couldn't put them all in a game, could you? Because I think I think if they're going to support a setting through mechanics, you have to have just the right mechanics and not too many. They've got to be just right. So have you got any ideas of like, you know, where, where are the games, the whole game's view, where the level of mechanics sits just right, where it's not too much, where it tips over into just a, a dice rolling fest and it's not so light that you don't feel like you're playing a game. Um, have you got anything that you love playing because that mechanics just just feels right? There, there's two that my go-to games, which will be no surprise to anyone who reads the forums, but one's Hot War which is really good at the conflict resolution side and the people with different agendas rubbing against each other the wrong way slightly. And it could be completely face-stabby and trying to kill each other, or it could be just a family that have fallen out a little bit and and that sort of thing. And you, you can apply them to any background, and Hot Wall works really well for that, for everybody and their own different agendas. And it's got cool bits in it, like uh, one particular bit to pick one out is uh, having traits, so you might be heavy-handed or... You might be uh, good in a fight or you might be a great politician or, or whatever. You can make the trait as descriptive as you want, keep it short and snappy. But what I like about it is that if you get negative traits, which you can do, normally is a, a failure from a conflict, you still get to add them into your dice. So a lot of games penalise you for things and give you minus ones or minus twos. Whereas that actually says, well, okay, you are heavy-handed, you do take things too far, you are quick to anger, but go on, then have three more dice in your next conflict. And it's good that a negative thing gives you more dice. There's still a downside to it in that if your negative dice come out highest in a conflict, it does mean that something bad comes out of it. So if you are trying to slap someone around, get some information out of them, and you're heavy-handed and that turns up top, it might mean that you kill them or you you, know, you, you beat them with lots of people looking or, or some other thing like that. So you still get what you want. You've got what you asked for as a player, but there's some negative consequence. So I like that sort of mechanic where it's feeding into giving the player more stuff to do and potentially giving you even more interesting outcomes than you asked for. So that's good, and it's nicely balanced. I like games with internal logic as well, so I'll mention the other one, Savage Worlds. And you did mention just then you can't take bits and pieces out, you can't engage with a game if you don't use it. 
wholly. Uh, I've got to mention the shaker mechanic because people talk about that quite a lot. And I think it's really integral. I wouldn't want to take that out. I really like Savage Worlds because it's internally consistent. It just seems to make sense. A lot of the sub-rules all kind of fit together nicely. And it really seems if you use bits and pieces together and people coordinate attacks and someone tricks someone so it makes it easy for his mate to hit them and that sort of thing, I think some people just use it as a kind of I hit it with my axe game, in which case you're losing a lot of it. Now, if you take shaking out, it then stops you doing things like taunting an opponent so he gets so furious he ends up shaking, which gives perhaps your friend a breather or a, a chance to get a better wounding hit because you've, you've put a, a condition on someone, for example. And it's interesting that people quite like stunned or other conditions you'll get in 4th edition D&D, for example, but seem to find the same thing as shaking where you might miss a turn or something like that. It's really um, distasteful in Savage Worlds. Uh, but there's also things like uh, suppressing fire as a mechanic, which I don't know how you do that in many games, but in this you kind of make a roll, your opponents all have to make spirit rolls, and if some fail, it means they hunker down, they can't put their heads up, if you're the one, you've hit them, and, and they may be shaken as well. And if you take shaken out, things like tricks, taunts, suppressing fire, and a whole raft of other things that make sense when you play in the game suddenly don't work. Um, so it's interesting that the uh, Pinnacle guys have decided to change the way the shaking mechanic works because there's been some kickback. But I think you have to use all of it. And Savage Worlds in general has got that right mix of action-adventure. It's my go-to game for that sort of thing. If you want to be Indiana Jones or that kind of level of action, I think Savage gives you options. You have to generally do all your own window dressing. So you've not got a list of spells. You'll have Bolt, for example, which is attack someone at range for some damage. You dress that up yourself however you want. You can give make it a fireball or a, uh, a whole cone of wasps or wh whatever it is, and that, that all comes from the player. And I think a lot of the game as well is very similar, that you have a fighting stat, whether it's a knife or a halberd or you hit some with a bench. It's up to you, the player, to add all the, the window dressing and make it sound exciting and cool. But the core mechanics are all there in Savage, and that's why I like it. The, the actual engine to run your game all works beautifully. The internal logic's all consistent. It's all nice and simple. And that can all chug away quite happily and working lovely. And then the players bring all the awesome stuff to it and make everything sound cool. And I think that the, I prefer that than having a massive list of spells or someone telling me how my actions went, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, so how about yeah. yourself? I, I've, I've got two games and one of them Savage Worlds. So yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely bang on. And, and rather than repeat what you just said uh, and, and just echo that, I would point to going back to cards, which we mentioned a long time ago now. One of my favorite mechanics from Savage Worlds is the use of playing cards for initiative. And that's, you know, that's pretty granular stuff. That's in a lot of role playing games. Um, and it goes back to the asymmetrical design thing that I was talking about as well and making the GM's life a little bit easier. There's millions of games with initiative, and I think I've run them all, and I don't know how many times I've had to write down a little list of player characters and write numbers next to them or tick marks or use index cards. I've bought boards with magnets on it. I've used dry whiteboards. I've used every system under the sun for initiative, and it's always been a pause in the game while people roll initiative. And Savage Worlds makes a mini game out of that pause in the game by dealing cards out around the table for initiative. Uh, so what? Well, the, re the reason it's so good is that it's a thing that can be handed off to a player 
uh, you know, the card monkey who wants to deal out those cards around the table. That gets the players involved in a place where traditionally they might start reaching for their phones, and you don't want that. Um, it also means that there's never any ties because you can't have like two rolls of a 16 and go, so what's your dexterity? Oh, it's the same as it's the same as hers. Oh, oh now what are we going to Now you've got to roll off. And, and by that time, people really are looking on Twitter. So there's no ties. You've got the whole suits thing as well. And it's super visual. So everybody knows who's already gone and everybody knows who's next. And even if as the GM, you want to keep a couple of cards behind your screen, when you come in and flop that joker on the table and get loads of bonuses because of it as well, it's good old-fashioned theatre. And I love that mechanic. And that's when it, when it arrived, it seemed to come from just totally left field. I don't know of any other games that did that sort of thing. Um, it's a traditional dice game, a very traditional dice-based trad game, but it uses a deck of cards just for that, or almost entirely just for that. Brilliant. So Savage Worlds does a lot of things very, very right, and that's the thing it does rightest. So, yeah, you need for Savage. But you got two picks, so I get the two picks. And my other mechanical delight, my mechanical guilty pleasure, is 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Because if you like mechanics, if gaming tech is the sort of thing that turns you on at any level whatsoever, then this is the Ferrari of games mechanics. Now, not everybody drives a Ferrari down to the shops every day, and not everybody uses it to commute to work. But as a piece of beauty that you can almost be intimidated by, it is exactly that. It has so many moving parts. It's a wondrously intricate system that delivers a very particular gaming experience that you can argue, and God knows people have, as to whether it delivers Dungeons & Dragons or not. I'll leave that for the, for the listener to decide, and they can you know, join me on an internet forum any time they want to debate that. But it does deliver an experience, specifically a combat one. No, though not exclusively. But the way it does it, it just it's so brave. For an RPG to bring in pieces of video game design, pieces of board game design, pieces of miniature games design, where a lot of exciting stuff is going on. We, we wouldn't talk about that too much on this podcast because we like our pen and paper and that's kind of cool. But that's where all the mechanical innovation seems to be going on. To bring that into the RPG world, I don't know if you could call it success commercially long-term, although it did very, very well for its run. But as a piece of games design, I think it's very, very brave indeed. Clearly not to everybody's liking, but you've got to admire its sheer balls. And I think 4E is, is a mechanical delight. And um, even though I, I'm unlikely to pull it off the shelf anytime soon, for, I'm going to use some of its lessons. And I think if you're going to design a game, it's one of the things you should read to give you a real understanding of what's possible, even if you choose to not go down that road. And that's my game for this week. Okay, well, I think that's probably enough for this week. But as I'm sure you, as well as I, have yeah. got... 20, 30, 40 more games we could talk about and pick bits out of. But what would be really interesting is to hear from some people out there in internet land. You can come to UK Role Players Forum or to our Smart Party blog or anywhere else to choose and uh, make some contributions. Tell us about your favourite mechanic or feel free to disagree with what we said or contribute to it in any way you want. We like to hear uh, some kind of contribution, don't we, Bass? We love it, mate. Tell us what you think. And if you don't think anything, tell us that too. And that's it for this week. So if you have any ideas about new topics or something you'd like to talk about or anything like that, again, just drop us a line. We can always include that in. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.